In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Rob and I are going to be talking about SaaS marketing lessons you'll wish you'd learned sooner. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 398. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Mike. And I'm Rob. We're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. What's the word this week, Rob? Well, the word this week is a little bit of wrestling with Google and their indexing and webmaster tools because I 301 redirected my entire old blog site, Software by Rob, and I got a new domain, robwalling.com, and I 301'd all that and got it all set up. And it's there's just always more complexity than uh, than you think it is, there's going to be. You know, I had this like seven step checklist that I went through, and of course, parts of it went wrong, and parts of it got cached while I was, uh, you know, in the middle of troubleshooting. And so you don't know what the real version is. So I'm literally like, I texted Derek, and I'm like, "Can you hit this URL and let me know what you see?" Even though I, you know, flushed my cache and all that, it was just giving me from different browsers was giving me different results. So it wasn't that big of a deal. But then the redirect was fine. Everything's been working, and then the Google indexing has really not started and it probably took it's been almost 10 days maybe 14 days and it's just now picking up on the new domain so i'm looking in the, at the search analytics and uh, just starting to see like 50 total clicks you know so it's literally like one day's worth of clicks or less than that actually has started to started to pick up the hard part about that is that because google has different like google plexes all over the place different people are going to be hitting different ones so they're not like the different indexes are in different places, which kind of sucks. Yeah, no, I agree. And this is just, you know, it's like try not to redirect stuff. You can totally do it and not lose traffic in the long term. But in the short term, it's kind of always, a, it's always a bit more work. And there's always these loose ends that, that happen. So it's by no means was, you know, was a disaster or anything. It was kind of a fun little Fun little thing to, uh, I don't know, to stay busy with, but I'll, I'll just be happy when everything's moved over. And, and, you know, again, the whole site's functional. If you go to robwalling.com, you can click around, everything's there. But now I'm just trying to get Google to, to make all the Google search results look, you know, use robwalling.com instead of the, uh, the old site. How about you? What's going on? Well, I was looking through some of the comments on some of our older episodes, and uh, there was one a couple of episodes ago where we had talked about the moniker of the rest of us and how we should have, you know, like trademarked that or something like that. Not that we probably would have gone down that road, but uh, Glenn Bennett wrote in and said that uh, there was an Apple ad from the 80s where they called it the computer for the rest of us. So we were beat by quite a lot on that. Oh, yeah. And that's been a part of the English language for, I guess, 50 years. You know, I, I have no idea what the the first use of it was, but I definitely heard it growing up, just people talking about that. Yep. Yeah. So we definitely missed the uh, the door on that one. Yeah, for sure. There's some other pretty interesting comments. There's a comment from Rasmus on episode 389, which was titled uh, Pro Tips for Attending Conferences. And he says something else he does is go to the gym in the morning. It really makes your mind and body ready to listen and learn all day. And that is something we forgot to say because I actually try to go to the gym when I'm at conferences. And it's especially easy at microconf because our of our 10 a.m. start time. And when we used to start at nine, I never had time because I was too tired. So that is something that, that I recommend. Even go to go for a short run, even if it's only 15 minutes or something, I, I like getting up and, and getting out. Another couple comments on episode 395, which was 20 podcasts we like. We had two more that were requested. Uh, Christoph Engelhart recommended How I Built This by Guy Raz. That's an NPR podcast, I believe. And he said he specifically liked the episode with the Collison brothers from Stripe, the guy from Home Depot, and the one with the founders 
of Ben and Jerry's. I've listened to a few episodes of how I built this and I liked it. I think I struggled with the fact there were some, the, the signal to noise for me was a bit low because it's an NPR show. And so it's tailored to the masses. And I always struggle to consume startup stuff made for the masses. But Honestly, it's a really well-produced show. If you're interested, it's just an interview format, basically, and it, it's you know it's it's as you would expect from NPR. And then the last comment was on the same episode from Abdu, and he says, "I found it odd you didn't mention Mixergy. Even Rob was a guest on it. And yeah, I've been a guest on Mixergy like six times, I think, five or six times. But it's not something that I currently have in my rotation. I definitely used to listen to it, but the volume of of shows that comes out." It just hasn't been on my radar for a while. I totally, I still see Andrew at conferences and, you know, every once in a while, uh, when I hear that someone I know, or there's a particularly interesting interview on Mixergy, I absolutely download it and listen to it, but it's, it's not in my everyday, you know, podcast subscription feed anymore. And again, that's mostly due to the, the sheer volume of shows that, that come out of there and the interview format. You know, I mean, Andrew was one of the early pioneers of that, right? There were folks who were doing startup interviews, but he came on the scene and really revolutionized that way before John Lee Dumas and, and several other folks who've done it since then. So um, I have a ton of respect for what he's built and obviously have enjoyed my conversations on, on uh, Mixergy with him. But I, in all honesty, listen to less interview shows than I used to. And I, you know, if you do look at that list of 20, there are very few truly just all interview shows, um, even like This Week in Startups you know, that we mentioned, they do some interviews, but I personally skip many of those. And I listened a lot more to the news round tables and even some of the, the pitching ones. You know, going back to your blog redesign that you did for uh, your website, there's a missed business opportunity in there where somebody could have acquired robwalling.com and uh, sold it to you. Oh, someone, so someone did. I bought it uh, from another guy named Rob Walling. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. I bought it a couple months <laughs> well, ago. But that's a different. That's different. Like if you bought it from another Rob Walling, whereas if you had bought it from Mike Tabor, then you know, yeah, that would have been true. different. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it was funny when I emailed him. The guy was like, "Whoa, this is kind of weird." <laughs> He's like, "I thought it was like a trick email, you know." And I was like, "No, this is actually another Rob Walling." We had a different middle name, of course, but but he did. He was funny. He said, um, "Well, I can tell by your name that you are a scholarly gentleman of great intelligence and manners, or something." And I was like, "Well done, sir. Like this is going to be fun, you know." Yeah. So it just the negotiation and. And buying it from it was kind of fun. That reminds me of when I was at Home Depot a couple of years ago. Then they paged Mike Tabor over the uh, intercom. And so, of course, I go, come to find out there's a, a guy who works there named Mike Tabor who lives nearby. But it was, it was interesting meeting another Mike Tabor. Yeah, totally. Very cool. What are we talking about today? Well, today we are going to be going over a blog article written by Carola Carlson, and uh, it's over at carolacarlson.com, and we'll link that up in the show notes. But it is about SaaS marketing lessons, and uh, the, the title of this episode is SaaS Marketing Lessons You'll Wish You'd Learned Sooner. And what I did was I kind of consolidated a bunch of these things because uh, there's uh, some things in here that overlap a lot with uh, other topics, and there's 35 different items in this particular blog article. So we're going to condense that down a little bit. We're going to talk a more focused about some of these different pieces where it applies specifically to the types of people that are listening to this show. And we have about nine, it looks like, down from 35. Oh, nine SaaS marketing lessons. Nine SaaS, you should add that. Make it a listicle. So the first one is about finding your high expectation customer. And there's another link that we'll add into the show notes because there is a link over to a blog article that somebody else wrote all about finding what your high expectation customer is. And the, the basic definition of that 
is the type of customer who has very high expectations for your product and they know exactly what it is that they want to do. And there's a, a series of questions that you can answer very specifically about them. For example, who is it that needs the product? What does it do for them? How do they feel about it? What's the true benefit for them? And will your product exceed their expectations? And if all those criteria are met, then you have what's called a high expectation customer because they they know exactly what it is that they want and they need and their bar is very high. And if you can exceed that bar, then you're going to satisfy a much larger number of customers. So early on, it's going to be very difficult for you to meet that, uh, especially because they're, they're going to be an advanced customer. They're not going to be uh, an early adopter. But assuming that you can meet that bar for that customer, then you're going to be able to sell to a lar much larger pool of people. And this is going to help you to grow the business a lot just because of that much larger pool. And, and knowing those numbers helps you in a, in a great number of other ways, which we'll talk about later in this episode. Right. And they define the high expectation customer. They say it's the most discerning person within your target demographic. It's someone who will acknowledge and enjoy your product or service for its greatest benefit. And that person needs to be someone who others aspire to emulate because they see them as clever, judicious, and insightful. The second lesson is to not sell to everyone. And I think this is, generally speaking, I think this is obvious advice. It's repeated a lot by different people in the startup spaces. But the real question is, why is this repeated so often? And it's because it tells you who not to sell to. Who should you not be targeting for your SaaS or your product or your service? And the, the real benefit of doing that is that if you can get rid of those people that in market, certain marketing channels or you avoid marketing to them, because they're not a great fit for your product. Either that could be for a variety of reasons. Either they churn out a lot or it's an ancillary benefit to them. They're not really looking for your product. There's all these different reasons why they might not be your ideal customer. But by removing them from the pool of people that you're actively marketing to, then it's going to yield a lot better ROI across all of your marketing channels. And it allows you to focus much more on the types of people who are a good fit for your product versus the ones that are not as good a fit. And you're going to have to do a lot more work in order to sell them on your product. Yeah. And in the early days, this is all you can do, right? I mean, you you have to, especially if you're bootstrapped, but even when you're funded. Five years ago, I thought about a venture-funded company and thought, man, they have infinite resources and they can just sell to everyone. And then, of course, I worked inside lead pages for 20 months and realized that, no, even there, there are these massive trade-offs. They just can't hire enough good people, even with really high budgets, they can't hire enough good people to sell to everyone. And so I think your point about, yes, we hear this over and over is well taken, but why do we hear it? And it's because people make this mistake over and over and over. And in your early days, it's really easy to anyone who gives you a dollar, you want to you wanna get the product to them because you want to maximize your revenue because every dollar means you can you know market more. But the problem with that is you can quickly, especially if you're building a software product, you can quickly go off the rails with folks who are requesting things that take you away from your core vision or the core vision that's going to kind of meet the needs of the most people versus, you know, someone again, who is, you know, if you're selling to, to internet marketers or to SaaS founders, and then a photographer comes in, he can pay you a thousand bucks a year, but he's going to have totally different requests. I went through this exact thing early on with Drip, where we just got requests that was like, I don't, we don't really want to build that. And that doesn't help anybody else. And so then that person was disappointed and they, you know, didn't love the product. And we eventually parted ways, but it was a, a lesson I think each of us learns as we go is just say no. 
fairly frequently. You know, if the person, if you don't think they're going to get value out of it or they're not in your core market, I would err on the side of saying no in the early days. And that kind of leads a little bit into the next one, which is to have a mission statement. And I think most of the time, this is probably not a great place to focus a lot of your time and effort. But the reality is that when you have a, a mission statement about what it is that you are trying to do and what you are trying to achieve with the product and the business, then it allows you to use that as marketing collateral. So you can tell your customers what it is that you're trying to achieve, who you're trying to do that for, and and who you are like and who you are not like. So this by default, by having this mission statement, it allows you to decide what it is that you don't do in addition to what it is that you are going to do. So by having that mission statement, you can refer back to it when you're trying to look at these customers who comes in and one of them says, oh, I run a photography business. They're like, yeah, that's probably not a great fit. And you can tell that by going back and looking at your mission statement. And I don't think a mission statement is something that you can do on day one just because it's probably going to take some time to figure out what that is based on who your ideal customer is. And you, you're not going to know that on day one. It's going to take some time and effort to figure that out over over the course of many months or even potentially years. But once you have that in mind, it gives you that reference point to go back and say no. So I would edit this one a bit. So in the article, Corolla says that you absolutely must know your unique value proposition and your mission statement. And for me, the unique value proposition comes way before a mission statement because mission statement is that global thing of like Google wants to organize the world's information. And it's like, I don't think you know that from the start. Very few people do, especially if you're kind of do, if you're bootstrapped, you're doing customer development or even funded for that matter. I I know I often say that if you're bootstrapped and blah, 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 but it's like, it applies to both in, in so many cases that if you're just trying to figure out what to build, I don't, I don't know that your mission statement matters as much as as you're honing in on a solution for your folks, for the people who are using you or asking for, you know, for you to make changes to the app, it's like, what separates you from the other solutions on the market? And that's what your unique value proposition is, right? The, U, the UVP, it's UVP or USP, unique selling proposition, but it's what makes you different. So when you're, you're building out an email solution, it's like, well, how are you different than than Yesware or than MailChimp. And and you just got to hone in on that because if you're not different, then it's just a me too play. And it's, you know, it's possible to make a living doing that. I mean, it's possible to build a business. Certainly people have done it, but it's so much harder because you're just going to be slogging it out for sales that you don't, you just don't have enough of a differentiator. If you're going to build something that's a me too play, then you need to find a unique traffic source, right? You need to, to be really good at SEO and rank in the top three and outrank everybody else and just expect that a certain amount of people are going to sign up without looking at your competition. So there are ways to do this, but in my book, trying to figure out early on how you're going to be differentiated from the competition is uh, probably the number one thing I'd look at. The next item on the list is that when you're putting together your growth plans, you should focus on actions, not just the numbers that you need to hit. And I think both of them are are absolutely important, but without those numbers, you don't know what it is that you're trying to achieve, but without the actions, you're never going to be able to achieve them because those actions are are critical to being able to meet whatever numbers you put on paper. And based on the numbers, you can backtrack from there and decide what actions need to be taken in order to get to that point. I think in a previous episode, we've talked about basically mapping out what 
your goals look like in reverse based on the end point that you're trying to reach and then backtracking from there. What is it do I, did I need to do before I get to that point and continuing along that path? But you need to have those actions and decide what order those actions need to be taken in. Because if you're not doing it in the right order or you're doing them in the wrong places, for example, if you want to do SEO on your website, that's great and all to, in order to increase the footprint. But what pages are the ones that you should start with? Certain pages are just not going to matter at all versus other ones. And being able to prioritize those is, is critical. I have mixed thoughts about this one. I agree that it should focus on both, in my opinion. I like focusing on actions, of course, because for exactly what you said and, and what, what she says in the article, because then you're just delivering and you're, you're you know, you're, as Steli said, you're making those 100 phone calls a day, not focusing on the end result of making X sales, but you're just putting in the work. But I'm also motivated by numbers, right? And I'm motivated by that, by the success of seeing things grow. And I like to have a goal to strive for that's not just going through the motions. And I know that this is not just saying, go, you know, go through the motions, but I think I could fall into the trap if I'm not also keeping my eye on the numbers of just doing things during the day. I think a lot of people can fall into that trap of it's like, my actions are to tweet this and to do a blog post and, you know, to do some Instagram and some social media. And that could be your plan. But it's like, you have to then measure and make sure that's moving the numbers. And maybe that's where maybe that's where I'm, I'm kind of nitpicking this one is, is I think it should be heavily correlated. You can't a attribute everything to numbers, but man, if you're not getting growth out of the plan you're doing, then you have to change that up. And so I think that's where I'm, I'm saying, like, I think I, I think I focus on both actions and numbers. Yeah, maybe, maybe focus is the wrong way to put it. It's that it needs to include both as opposed to should focus on one or the other. Like if you have a growth plan and it's just, hey, these are the numbers that I want to hit, it's going to be useless. You have to have those actions as well. But if you're going to go through those actions, you also need to do some sort of measurements and have numbers that you're going to hit afterwards. Because if you're just doing actions, as you said, and you're not getting any results out of it, then why are you doing those things? So the, the critical piece here is you have to have both. It's not just one or the other. So moving on, the next one is to optimize for growth, not leads. And uh, it kind of ties back a little bit back to the growth plan. But if you are optimizing for adding, like, let's say, newsletter subscribers, that's great and all. But how are you getting them through the rest of your funnel? Are you trying to optimize them to get them to become activated or sign up to download other things from your newsletter? Are you trying to get them over to the pricing page? What is it that you're trying to get them to do next? And you need to track that customer or that prospect through the entire sales funnel. Because if you're not doing that, then you can't track those numbers and you have no way to identify how many people are moving from one step to the next. And by tracking those things, it allows you to get rid of the lower ROI activities that you're doing because those are time and money sinks. And it's just going to take up a lot of your time and attention that you could be using to spend on other higher ROI activities because those are the things that are generating better leads and those better leads are, become better customers because they're going to stick around for longer and because they're a better fit for you. Yeah, this reminds me of a, a couple conversations I've had over the years with with folks who who are measuring too early in the funnel. And I was talking to one startup founder who said, yeah, I have you know 10,000 uniques a month to my website. How many uniques do you have? And it was like, that doesn't matter. Right. It really doesn't matter unless we're talking about certain things. But if we're talking about just making sales, it's like, no, how many trials did you get out of that? Oh, how many converted to to paid? Oh, how many stuck around for more than two or three months? You know, it's like go deeper in the funnel, which is essentially what this is saying. Don't get hung up on these top of the funnel metrics. Now, the top of the funnel metrics 
can be important because they obviously feed the later metrics. But if you're not closing and retaining people, you are leaking people out of the bottom of your funnel and and you're never going to grow the business. So what's funny is I think it was the same conversation. The guy who said he had 10,000 uniques. And at the time, like .NET Invoice was doing a thousand uniques or 1500, but it was doing three or four grand a month. And he was blown away by that, right? Because it was doing way more than his app. And I was like, it's because a lot of people who come, it's highly targeted traffic. And so many of the people who come, they buy, you know, and it's 300 bucks a month. I mean, there were all these reasons why it, why it worked, why the math worked, but it was just a head exploding thing. And, and really it's just math. It's just look at the, you know, look at the top and you're going to lose certain people out of each step of that funnel, whether it's to a demo or to a trial, and then it's to paid, and then it's how long they stick around. And with the rules of thumb that we frequently covered in this podcast, I've covered in talks, I've covered in, uh, in blog posts and such, you can tell which step of the funnel you need to focus on. That's the biggest thing, right? Is it's like optimizing for growth means focus on that part of the funnel where you have the opportunity to make the biggest difference. And as you grow your app, that is going to move. It's going to move down the funnel. Probably early on, it's going to be like, oh my gosh, we're not retaining anyone. And it's like, well, it's because you don't have product market fit. And this could be like, oh my gosh, no one's signing up for a trial. Well, it's because your marketing's off with your product market fit now. And then it's like, oh my gosh, we don't have nearly enough people hitting our website. And it's like, yeah, it's because you haven't been focusing on marketing. You've been focusing on customer development and building a product. So, you know, you're going to move up and then you'll probably move the other way and move right back down, uh, you know, one to two years in your product, assuming you have something that's, that's reasonably successful. And that actually takes us to our next one, which I think is point five or six, and it's track the right metrics. So it's things like monthly recurring revenue, cost per acquisition, cost to acquire a customer, and your lifetime value. You obviously need to look at top of funnel stuff like how many uniques to my website? How many trials am I getting? What is the visit to trial percentage? What is the trial to paid percentage? You need to look at those, but those are not as important as the ones I just said, because the ones, the MRR cost per acquisition and the lifetime value are the ones that are optimizing for growth. A loose rule of thumb is that lifetime value should be greater than or equal three times your cost to acquire a customer. That means it's a solid acquisition channel if you can make those numbers line up. Now, one thing to say is that's what holds true for funded companies. And typically you want to, if you're funded, you want to acquire a customer for less than one year of their value to you. So if someone, you know, the average revenue per user or even the revenue for this particular user is 20 bucks, then no matter how long they stick around, even if they stick around five years, if you're funded, you tend to want to spend less than about 240 bucks to acquire that person because it was 20 bucks a month times 12. Now, if you're not funded, cash is a real issue. And typically I see folks wanting to keep their customer acquisition costs to between two and four months of what they're going to get back from that customer. And as I, I remember with Hittail and then with Drip, as we got more money coming in, we extended that out to five and then six and then seven. And you, and you learn to manage your cash and you learn you know, that, that this much cash is coming in and I can now spend more and more to acquire. Because the more you can spend, the more customers you can, you can push through the funnel. So you can't do this without tracking the right metrics. And you have to keep in mind, not just these loose rules of thumb that are thrown around for funded companies, but if you're bootstrapped, it's going to be a little bit of a tighter, tighter grip on that purse unless you have a big bucket of funding that you're pulling from. Yeah, and just to reiterate on that piece that Rob had commented on, if you're bootstrapped, you really want to get your money back a lot quicker if you can with Bluetick. I mean, I'm going through the same thing where 
it's very difficult to allocate a lot of money and resources towards acquiring customers in certain channels just because I know that it's going to take a heck of a lot longer. And, uh, you know, the reality is I just don't have the money to be able to dump a lot in. And because if you, let's say it costs you $500 to acquire a customer and yes, you'll get 1500 out of it, but it's going to take you a full year to get there. You can end up going broke if you're trying to dump all your money into that. So it's kind of have to play long ball there. And the point of that particular anecdote is that everything takes a lot longer than you want it to. So you're going to have to track your funnel activity over a longer period of time. You're probably going to get your lifetime value from these customers in a much longer period of time than you would like to. But you know, the, your tests will take longer to complete. You're going to have, then you're going to have to analyze them and act on them. But everything is going to take a lot longer than you would like it to. And that includes goals and stuff that you put forward as well. So if you decide that, you know, hey, we're going to do this marketing campaign and we expect it to take three or four weeks, it's probably going to take you five or six, if not longer, just because of all the other things that are going on that are going to demand your attention in the business. Support tickets will come up, things like that. And it's just it just takes longer to do just about everything. Our second to last lesson you'll wish you learned sooner is to publish with intent. And it's basically to have a strategy behind what you publish, to provide value in a consumable format, to value quality over quantity, and to track performance and double down on promoting content that does well. Five years ago, quantity actually went out over quality. Not in every case, but people who just cranked out, you know, companies that were cranking out one post a week and then three and then five and then literally 10 a week, twice a day during the week, were winning the SEO game and the content marketing game. And that has switched. That's changed up. Now folks are focusing on much longer pieces of content, really pillar content that, you know, the ultimate guide to this and the definitive guide to that, that might be 20, 30,000 words, you know, half the length of a book. And they make it available as a download, but also for the SEO, uh, put it in HTML format. And, you know, it's bigger bets. It's fewer and bigger bets is what it is. And then you double down on the ones that work and you walk away from the ones that don't. And that's essentially what what Corolla is talking about here. And the last SaaS marketing lesson you'll wish you learned sooner is that prospects are people. Pretty much everybody on your mailing list that has signed up for it at some point, there's a person behind every single one of those email addresses. And people don't generally like to be sold to. What they enjoy is going to a website that is going to educate them because you're the expert in a particular space and they're trying to learn from you. And then moving on from that, once you have established that trust, then you're going to be able to sell your product to them. But it's more of a it's more of a situation where they're the ones who are deciding that are they're going to take that next step. And this is mainly because it is a an online marketing scenario. If you are in a direct sales demo, then you're essentially pitching, but you're you're on that schedule within whatever the time of that meeting is. But when they're coming to your website, they're on their own schedule and they can pick and choose when they're going to move forward. And you have very, very little control over it. So the reality is you have to treat them like a person when you're interacting with them through the mailing list and take time to build that trust. Don't try to pitch, 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 because it's just simply not going to work. Going the education route, helping them to become better at whatever it is that they're trying to do is going to be much more effective than trying to build all of the trust in a particular email and then sell them on a particular touch point. They're not just going to come to your website and buy something on the first shot. 
Yeah, there are very few products that you can sell with one touch point. Often info products are this way because they tend to be impulse purchases and you can put time constraints and, and reward pressure and all that stuff. And that is one reason that info marketers have these big splashy launches is that it's not a recurring payment and it's just, it's aspirational and you can sell a lot more of something when it's aspirational. But when it's software, it requires people's time. And so as you're saying, folks are very unlikely to come and buy the first time and there does have to be some type of trusted relationship built up. Now, there are ways to shortcut this. One of the ways is to have social proof, in essence, to have other people vouch for you. But I, I should back up and say the first way to do it is just to build your own audience, right? And you don't have to do that to start a product. There's a bunch of people who, who do it without ever having an audience of people that follow them. I've done it several times with several products, and it's totally doable, and it's not a bad way to go. I don't think building an audience is the only way to do it. However, these days it is easier than ever to build an audience if that's your thing. And so you can do that to build trust in advance. The problem is you have to have a massive list, right? Let's say you have a list of a thousand people who are really following you and you want to sell a, a SaaS product that's 10 or 20 bucks a month. You're not going to get to critical mass that way. And you're just not going to sell enough licenses, uh, you know, or subscriptions to your software to make that work. If you're selling a book, uh, and you have a thousand people really following you, you might sell 300, 400 copies of that book. It would, it would be an ambitious amount, but I've done it myself. My first book did that. And that is enough to kind of, to kind of get a ball rolling that could potentially, you know, result in stuff down the line. So those are kind of the two sides of building the audience yourself. Another way to do it, as I was saying earlier, is that the next step is to kind of have other people vouch for you. And whether that means testimonials or whether that means they'll do joint webinars with you, you know, in some way endorsing your product, saying that they use it, assuming that they do, that's another way to kind of shortcut that trust and get growth faster than having to educate everyone individually about why they should trust you. And that was one thing that Clay Collins did really well in the early days of lead pages was to do the webinar model and to do it with a bunch of his internet marketing friends who would vouch for lead pages uh, because they were using it. And then there you go, you have access to literally hundreds of thousands of people, even though your audience is, is not that large. So that's just one angle of this prospects are people. But the real thing to think about is that every, every prospect, every person makes their own decision based on what they know about you and the product and, and what they've heard about you and the product. And so it's something to, to keep in mind that just numbers and conversion rates can help you forget much to your detriment. So to recap, the nine SaaS marketing lessons you'll wish you'd learn sooner are number one, find your high expectation customer. Number two, don't sell to everyone. Number three, have a mission statement. Number four, growth plan should focus on actions and not numbers. Number five, optimize for growth, not leads. Number six, track the right metrics. Number seven, everything takes time. Number eight, publish with intent. And number nine, prospects are people. If you have a question for us, call our voicemail number at 888-801-9690 or record an MP3 and email us at questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot, used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsfortherestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.